All right, if you want to, even if you don't want to, turn to 2 Timothy um, chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 14 to 26, and um, we are going to talk about what God has to say to us through his word. So I'll give you a second to get there, 2 Timothy 2. Um, I'm going to read all the verses. It's a little bit long, but the Bible tells us that reading the word together out loud is profitable. So, um, so I'm going to pick up in verse 14. This is what it says. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Avoid irreverent bab- but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenus and Philetius, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set set apart as holy useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on God from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that these breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your kindness to leave us a tangible gateway from our seen earthly world into the unseen spiritual world, Lord. I thank you for giving us word that's inerrant, that we can trust, that we can rely on. I pray this morning, Lord, that you will work in our hearts. I pray that you will help me, Lord, not to desire any glory for myself, but only for you. I pray, Lord, that you will help our hearts to be open, to be encouraged. Um, If we're down, Lord, help us to receive words of encouragement. Lord, if we are struggling with pride, help us to be humble, to receive words of admonishment. I pray that you would work in us this morning, Lord. And I pray just with the confidence to know that you have said that you will establish your church and that you will bring forth your purposes in the world. And so we rest in that assurance, Lord. We rest in your finished work, and we pray that you'd be with us now as we go in to your word. In your name, amen. Uh, So the title of today's sermon is um, very technical. It's called Quarrels Ain't Worth It. So um, that's too theological for some of you, I apologize, but, uh, but that's the name of our sermon because this has a lot to say about quarreling, divisions, divisiveness, 
Uh, Paul has a lot to say in this text. And so before we get too far into the text, I want you to think about, uh, if you need to close your eyes, it's fine. Think about the people in your life that are closest to you. Maybe the top two, three, four people and who they are. Uh, could be, you know, uh, church family, could be coworkers, could be roommates, uh, could be friends, your besties, your BFFs. Um, so think about who those people are. And um, as you're doing that, one of my good friends growing up, his name is James McClintock. And uh, we lived near each other in high school. We knew each other since fourth grade. We lived near each other in high school. And we used to hang out a lot together. And so we, and we both liked sports, so we played a lot of volleyball and a lot of basketball. And I probably got the better of him, maybe slightly on the, on the volleyball court, but uh, we played a lot of basketball together. And um, that was a bad matchup for me because... James played on our high school basketball team, and I did not. James is 6'1", and I'm not. I know I look tall on this stage. It's an illusion. Uh, and so, um, and we were both pretty competitive and uh, wanted to win. And I remember one time we were playing with some other friends in an old warehouse. And uh, I, I cannot remember how or why, but at some point we got upset with each other. And... Uh, it escalated from words into pushing, and pushing escalated into shoving, and it was about to turn into fists, and thankfully our friends broke in and pulled me one way and pulled him the other, and uh, gave us some time to calm down, and uh, we were young, and, you know, stuff like that happens sometimes, and so thankfully it didn't damage our relationship. We were able to move on and, and not think twice about it, uh, and so... Um, it, it can happen quickly. You can turn from somebody that you love spending time with to uh, you can turn to being ready to fight and, and sometimes fight to the death with them, whether it be verbally or, or even physically, uh, if you have brothers. Um, so as you're thinking about those top two or three people in your mind, when I ask you to, to think who that was, probably you got a slideshow of who these people were in your mind. And if you've known them for a while, uh, it's really likely that there have been times where you have done something to hurt that person or that person has done something to hurt you. There have probably been times where you have had to ask for forgiveness or you've had to forgive. Uh, there have probably been times where you may be left hanging out and you were upset because of something they did or said or how they treated you. And so these types of things happen. And our relationship as a church, our big kind of corporate relationship, is really just made up of all the individual relationships that we have with each other. And so there are bound to be times that as a body in church, that we get our feelings hurt. There are bound to be times that we do things to hurt others' feelings. There are bound to be times that we need to ask forgiveness. There are bound to be times that we suffer under poor leadership decisions. And there are bound to be times that we want to rebel and resist good, loving admonishment and, and truth-speaking into our lives. And Paul knew that this was going to be a struggle for us. He knew it was going to be a struggle for us to love each other well in the gospel, and he labors so much in the New Testament, whether it's in 1 Corinthians or it's in, you know, his Galatians uh, to Colossians or in this text in 2 Timothy. He labors so much to remind us to be loving toward each other, to speak truth to each other, to encourage each other, and to not chase after our natural tendencies, which is to want to divide and want to create divisions. And so as I was going over this text, um, we're going to look at kind of four different things. So first of all, as an overview, I just want to give a brief reminder of, of what Eric preached on last week and uh, kind of what 
um, Paul, because he says in verse 14, remember these things. So we need to, we need to see what he's going to remind us of. So I'll do a brief reminder of that. Then I want to do a summary of the warnings and instructions. So as you go through this, there's a bunch of uh, pursue this, avoid this, you know, uh, encourage this, flee this. So I want to go through a summary of the warnings and instructions. And I want to focus in on verses 21 to 26, which are really rich. We could probably have several sermons just out of those verses. And then I want to end by celebrating all of the things that we agree on in Christ. Uh, I think this is a, a season where we can be prone to division for a lot of different reasons. And I thought it would be good to just, uh, as I was thinking about all the things that we have to agree on and celebrate, I thought it would be good to close the passage with that. So that's where we're going today. Um, so I want to start in verse 14. Um, Paul says, uh, if you go back up to verse, well, verse 14, he says, remind them of these things. So what are the these things? He says, if you go back up to verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So we are to remember the gospel. We are to remember that this is our hope. This is the reason that sinners have hope to be redeemed from destruction. It's because of the gospel. We're to remember that when we're faithless, as he says um, in verse 13, we're to remember that when we are faithless, Jesus remains faithful. We're to remember that we died with him and we will also live with him. We're to remember that life will not be easy, but through the work of the Spirit, we can endure until the end. Because we are prone to become forgetful. We're prone to become dull. We're prone to, to, to want to turn our back on the things that have saved us. And um, as I was going over this passage, I consulted a, diff- a couple different commentaries, and I found the one from John Calvin on this uh, immensely helpful. And if you think about him, he wrote you know, about these verses uh, 500 years ago, and they're still applicable to us today. So um, I'm going to share several quotes from him, but of verse 14, this is what he says in reference to the beginning part of the chapter. He says, Paul means that the summary of the gospel that he has just given, along with the exhortations he has added, is so important that every good minister should never grow weary in dealing with them. They deserve to be constantly taught, and people cannot be taught about them too much. And so we need to remember the gospel because we're going to be prone to forget it. And we need to encourage each other, and we're going to need other people to remind us, and we're going to need times where we remind them. So let's go on, and he talks a lot in these verses again. So I want to give a summary of kind of the warnings and then the instruction. And some of them are intertwined within the same verse, but we're going to look at the warnings first and then the instructions. And he uses a lot of strong language here. So he uses words like charge them not to, avoid, flee, uh, have nothing to do with, escape. This is, this is strong language about how you need to react when you're tempted to get sucked in or you're tempted to pursue the wrong things. He wants to drive home the point that we don't need to mess around, we don't need to coddle, and we don't need to entertain things that will lead to destruction. So in verse 14, he says, do not quarrel. He says, remember these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. So he says, do not quarrel because this only ruins the hearers. And he talks about quarreling in verses 14 and in verses 23. And when you get to verses 23, he actually talks about quarreling. uh, uh, He talks about disputing things, breeding quarrels, like literally it's giving birth to it. And so um, 
about quarrels in this passage, I thought John Calvin's, uh, again, was helpful. He says this, First of all, we note that quarreling is rightly condemned on the sole ground that it is no good. God's purpose is not to pander to our inquisitiveness, but to give us profitable instruction. So away with all speculations that produce no edification. But the second reason is much worse. When questions are raised that are not only fruitless, but ruins those who listen. I wish this could be taken to heart by those who are always looking for wordy battles, searching out a quarrel in every question, quibbling over individual words and syllables. But they are carried away by ambition, which as I know through experience with some of them is sometimes as fatal as a terminal illness. So he compares quarreling to even being sick with a terminal illness, that it's, it's that serious and how it can be destructive in our relationships and in our churches, specifically our church. Then he says, avoid irreverent babble. So in verses 16 and 17, he says, avoid irreverent babble because it leads to ungodliness and it spreads like a disease. He says specifically gangrene, which at the time, you know, up until recently, there wasn't a cure for gangrene except getting an amputation. So this is a bad thing to have happen. So, um, and then he reminds that through these, uh, this irreverent babble, that people can actually um, turn their back on the truth. So this is serious business, not only because it causes controversy within the, tr- in the church, but again, the church corporately is made up of our individual relationships. So if people start turning their back on the truth, that's a very serious thing. Then he says, flee iniquity, flee sin, in verse 19. So this is a sign that we're God's children by fleeing iniquity. Um, And to me, anytime I read the word flee in the scripture, I think of Joseph. Uh, Not saying that that's right or, you know, I should write a commentary on it. But anytime I read the word flee in the scripture, I think of Joseph with um, his master's wife. When she seizes him and, and tries to pull him in forcefully to have an affair with her, he flees and he, he runs out so fast that she's holding on to him so tightly that she rips off his robe and he runs out uh, with no clothes on. But it was that serious to him to get out. And so anytime I read the word flee in the scripture, I take it very seriously that it's something that we need to not even give a second thought to. Our first impulse should be to just bolt and get away as fast as we can. He says flee youthful passions, which we'll talk about. Often that is talking about kind of lustful behavior, but in this case it's talking about Sometimes the temptation to, to um, use eagerness and zeal without experience to, to kind of create clashes and, and dissension. And he says in verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. The outcome of these things is quarrels. Or li- literally, it's the breeding ground for quarrels. This is how they start and this is how they mushroom and to become a problem. So he says, um, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Um, and then he gives us a lot of instruction in this passage. So if we go back up to verse 15, he says, work hard for the Lord. Working in the Lord's will will bring glory, and it does not lead to shame. That's what he tells us in verse 15. Then in verses 21, 20 to 21, he says, be ready for every good work of the Lord. We are to pursue God and cleanse ourselves from dishonorable use, so that we'll be useful to God, we'll be useful tools in the hands of the Savior. Verse 22, he tells us to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and be pure in heart. Verse 24 is loaded. He says, be kind, be able to teach, endure patiently. 
be kind, be able to teach and endure patiently. And then finally in verse 23, why are we doing all, verse 25, why are we doing all of those things? So that we may correct with gentleness. Um, that's the ultimate goal we see in verses 25 and 26. So that they may lead to repentance. So that God may grant repentance and they may come to their senses. And so the ultimate goal of these things is that people will see sin and the devil for its horror and will see God in his glory and his goodness. And I think Paul, maybe better than anybody, uh, at least articulated and understood what it was like to be zealous for something and um, to find out that you were wrong. I mean, here's a guy who was zealous for the Lord. He thought he had approved of a man's death because he thought that was glorifying to the Lord. He had asked to be charged with the authority to go into Christian houses and drag off Christians to prison and to persecute them because he thought this was the Lord's will. And he not only understood what it was like to be zealous for, um, the, for the wrong reason, thinking you were doing God's work to only find out you were working against God, he understood the power of God to be able to break in and change hearts. God had completely spun his life around from persecuting the believers and followers of Christ to bring him into, he was persecuted, imprisoned, and beaten, and went through all kinds of terrible things only because of his love for Jesus and his desire to admonish and plant churches and tell people to pursue. So he understood how we could get, um, how we could get off and think we were right and how God's power could come through. So he had, he had the understanding, but he also had the hope. And once we've been redeemed, he understood the struggle in our hearts. So we've been redeemed. We have the Holy Spirit. We are free from sin, but the old nature is still here. Until we go to be with God in glory, we are, we are being sanctified, and God is rooting out the old nature. And this is what he said in Romans 7, verses 21 to 24. He spends all of Romans 7 lamenting over the fact that he has these desires of what he wants to do, but he sees himself pursuing and doing other things. And so he spends this chapter discussing his lament. This is what he says in Romans 7, 21 to 24. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin and dwell captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he cries out, wretched man that I am. So this is a man who understood the power of God to break in and change hearts. And God used immensely to plant churches all over the world at that time. And yet he's being honest about how much of a struggle it is for him to wrestle with sin. And he was well acquainted with the sin nature. He knew, that's why he labors so much in the New Testament, for us to love each other well and pursue peace. He knew we would be prone to uh, divisions. He knew we'd be prone to divide and encourage people to take a side and, and, and to be on our side versus other people in the church. He knew we'd be prone to want to stir up controversy and quarrels. Even if we're pursuing the Lord, he still knew we would be prone to do those things. But he also was zealous with the hope that he knew God could break in and that he could provide peace. So I want to go now and focus specifically on verses 21 to 26, which again are, are really rich. We're going to even have to hit those uh, pretty quickly. All right, so verse 21, well, I'll read 20 kind of as a, an on-ramp. He says, 
Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. Holy means set apart, distinct. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So holy means to be set apart. It means to be different from the things that are around it. And um, holiness is one of those things that we're to pursue, but it's not something that we can earn. God has to do the work. Again, I want to reference Calvin. I think he had a great, uh, a great summary of this verse. He says, nobody questions that we are to be holy, but the question, I think he means within the church. Obviously, some people would probably question that. Nobody questions that we are to be holy, but the question about a Christian's duty and vocation is different from the question about his ability or power to fulfill it. We do not deny that believers are required to purify themselves, but the Lord also declares that this is his work. So we should plead with the Lord to cleanse us instead of vainly exercising our strength to do it without his help. This is the Christian life. We are to come into the Lord's presence. We are to gaze upon his beauty. We are to meditate on who he is, and it is the Holy Spirit that does the work. We do not have a self-help gospel. We do not have a pull-yourselves-up-by-your-bootstraps gospel. We do not have a quit crying and put on your big boy pants or your big girl pants gospel. That's not the kind of guy that we serve. We have a, a gospel that says we are completely faithless, destitute, with nothing to add or offer on our own, but God comes in and he does the work. He saves us, he redeems us, he adopts us as his children, and then he does the work of sanctification. So we add nothing, but we plead with him to do the work. And so if we're working on our own, we're going to be disappointed in the results because it's not what he's called us to do. He's called us to gaze upon his beauty, to pursue him, and he will, he will bring about the sanctification. In verse 22, he says, So flee useful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and patience, along um, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So I love this verse because he tells us to flee one thing, and he gives us five things to replace it with. That's a pretty good switch. So flee one thing, pursue these five things. And again, normally when you see flee youthful passions, you're thinking of kind of uh, like shameful, lustful behavior or desires. Um, but I, I don't think that's what he means here. Uh, and this is what Calvin says about this. This is the last Calvin quote, I promise. He says, uh, so Paul advises him, Timothy, to flee the evil desires of youth by which he does not mean sexual sin or other disgraceful desires or licentious behavior young men are often indulged in, but rather those impetuous feelings and impulses that the excessive passion of youth make men prone to. In arguments, young people become more heated more quickly than those of mature years. They become, more, they become angry more easily, and they make mistakes, more mistakes from lack of experience and rush into things with great rashness. So Paul has every reason to tell a young man to be on his guard against the faults that his age made him particularly prone to, or else he will easily be led into useless disputes. Now, does Paul mean only that youth are tempted in this way? Certainly not. I've known older people uh, that are very tempted to, um, to lose their temper, to become uh, angry, to fly into a rage, and you know verbally assault people. So he's not saying this is unique to youth, but just as older people may be tempted toward different 
kinds of, uh, of sin, maybe giving up uh, maybe hopelessness or bitterness or, or feeling disappointed. Um, younger people have uh, a tendency, is what Paul is saying, toward kind of, you know, becoming more angry more quickly or becoming heated or not handling things maybe in the right way. So that's what Paul is getting at here. He's not saying that this is unique to young people and once you get past a certain age, um, you no longer have to deal with it. But he is saying you need to recognize that this tendency is there and um, that there are things in your life when you're younger that you may be tempted to more to fall into sin to, just like it may be a different set of things you're more tempted to fall into. But he gives us a lot of things to replace it with, right? He gives us righteousness, faith, love, peace, and calling on God with a pure heart. And as I was thinking on those five things, I was reminded of the Sermon of the Mount. A lot of these parallel with the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells us, what does he tell us about righteousness? He tells us that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. It's a promise in the scripture. If you're pursuing God, you will be satisfied. He tells us that the peacemakers, so when Paul tells us to pursue peace, the peacemakers will be called sons of God or sons and daughters of God, that that's literally, you know, a display of being adopted as a child of Christ. And he says, those who call on God with a pure heart in the Sermon of the Mount, they will see God. That will be their reward. They will get to see God and enjoy him. And this is the only way that we can truly be satisfied. We will not be satisfied by winning arguments or by creating controversies and getting more people on our side. But we will be satisfied by pursuing righteousness. We will be satisfied by living a life of faith. So as we go on to verses 23 to 26, these are really, really dense four verses. Uh, Again, we could probably have several sermons just on these. They're full of instruction and how to practically deal with with, uh, others. Um, So verse 23, Paul starts off, he says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So what's he saying? He's saying, when you get your eyes off the gospel, watch out. Because our sin nature is there. And it will rear its ugly head, and the results will not be pretty. And he says, um, they breed quarrels. Literally, they give birth to quarrels. It gives birth to fighting. And so he tells us, what does he say after that? He said, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. It's not easy to be kind to everyone. It's not easy to be kind to people who are not being kind to you. It's not easy to be kind to people that you don't understand. Uh, It's not easy to be kind when you don't understand why people are acting a certain way. But he tells us that we need to be kind to everyone. And then what does he say after that? Uh, He says, you can't be quarrelsome as the Lord's servant. You've got to be kind to everyone. You've got to be able to teach. Now, there's a lot of different ways you could teach. So he's going to give some instruction, and he's going to specifically flavor it with gentleness. So he's going to say, you've got to be able to teach. We need to be able to treat everyone with kindness, and we need to be able to teach. And then he says, one of the things very important, patiently enduring evil. Paul knew we would be quick to impatience. He knew we would be quick to want to give up on people when we're not seeing results. He knew we'd be quick to want to just turn our backs when things get hard and walk away. So he says, we've got to patiently endure. We can't give up and move on. And then he says, we have to correct We have to correct with gentleness. So he's not saying that we have to to ignore, that we have to pander, that we have to endure these wrong, uh, kind of wrong 
behaviors or sin, he is saying we need to correct, we need to rebuke, we need to admonish, we need to teach, we need to instruct, but we have to do it with gentleness, which is not our, um, at least for me, it's not my uh, natural bent when I'm not in the spirits and want to correct with gentleness. And so I think this applies to everybody in the church, but I want to specifically just relate it to those who are leaders, whether you're an elder, deacon, uh, community group leader, ministry lead, or I would say just uh, uh, there are lots of different types of leaders in the church, formal and informal. Uh, informal might be just a thought leader, or, or some people just have kind of naturally a bigger sphere of influence where people go to them and ask, hey, what's your, what's your opinion on this? What do you think about this? So regardless of the type of leader that you are, formal, informal, male, female, when you're a leader in the church, these things become even more important. And they need, to, um, they need to apply being kind, being patient, being able to teach, being able to correct with gentleness. They need to apply to all of our interactions, okay? And so not just, um, not just when we're preaching from the pulpit, but they need to apply to our personal interactions, phone conversations, emails, texts, and even social media. These things, the scripture does not hit a point where it no longer applies just because we're on a different medium of interacting with somebody. Being kind, being patient, being able to endure, being able to correct with gentleness, these things are to permeate all of our interactions with each other and those around us. And so why does Paul want to remind everyone of these things? Why does he tell us we need to be able to teach each other? Why does he tell us that we need to be able to patiently endure? Because he knew we're not going to want to. He knew we we're going to want to forget 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26. But he corrects us and he tells us that for at least two reasons. One, when we do these things, we're following the example of Christ. If you read the Gospels, this exemplifies Jesus. He was reviled. He did not revile back. He was very patient with his disciples, very patient. They were stupid and they made a lot of mistakes and we're stupid and we make a lot of mistakes. He's very patient with us today. He brings us along gently. And so, one, we want to follow his example. But secondly, we have hope that God will change hearts. We're not correcting with no hope that God can break through and change hearts. And he doesn't call us, nowhere in the scripture does it call us to change somebody's heart. He calls us to be faithful to him. It's the Holy Spirit that will do the heart change, that will open eyes to the gospel and bring people in as new believers. It's the Holy Spirit that will correct believers in sin and open their eyes and bring them back to, um, to repent, just like he did David. Nathan didn't go in and say something magical to David. He wasn't the one that brought repentance. He merely followed what the Lord commanded him to do, and the Holy Spirit is the one that brought that conviction on David. And David repented and writes a beautiful Psalm 51 about how he has sinned against the Lord, and the Lord is the one who has redeemed him. So, as we conclude, I, wanna, I, I was thinking about um, listing all the things that we could disagree on. Or actually, I wasn't going to list all the things that we could disagree on because I'd be here till next Sunday. But um, I was going to list some things that just disagreements in the church that have come up just mainly in my time uh, around being an elder here. But um, I didn't want to do that. So I'm going to, uh, and then I was going to focus on things we agree on. Um, but I think we all know that we're tempted toward disagreement. I mean, if you look in the United States, it's hard to count exactly, but there's 150 to 200 different Protestant denominations. Uh, and these have all started or split off from others for various reasons. Within many denominations today, there's a lot of divisions. Um, 
And I was reading this morning on the Gospel Coalition, uh, Joe Carter did an article, I don't know if it was last night or this morning, I saw it this morning, um, about um, the Barna Group in a, in a research that they've been doing since 2011 about how many adults in America are interacting with the Bible. Uh, and as an encouragement in January this year, that hit an all-time high. It was 70 million people, uh, and it had been going up over the last few years. And I found that really encouraging. But since the pandemic started, they, they do, I guess they must do this check-in like twice a year. They just did a check-in in June, and the number had dropped by 13 million people, which I expected the opposite, right? People have more time. They're at home. They have less busy lives. It, it should be, there should be less things vying for their attention to interact with the Bible. A lot of people have been struggling, um, you know, with, uh, with, with hard things, whether it be loss of job or mental health. Um, and so when I read that, I thought, oh, my goodness. That in six months, um, now, you know, like all surveys, there's, you know, it's not perfect data, but in six months, according to their survey, which they've been doing for 10 years, it dropped by 13 million people from 70, about 71 million people to 58 million people kind of regularly interacting with the Bible. And as I was thinking about that in this sermon this morning, I thought, we are prone to want to quarrel with each other and get our eyes off Christ. Uh, And we have so many things going on around us, right? Whether it's um, ethnic... Uh, uh, you know, um, ethnicity stuff that's going on, the pandemic stuff, the election stuff that's coming on. We have so many reasons, believer, non-believer, to kind of just disagree, disagree and have divisions right now. And then if as believers we're getting our eyes off the gospel and we're not spending as much time with the Lord, we are primed and, and prone for divisions. And I felt in May, um, just kind of out of the blue, I felt the Lord putting on my heart, to really pray for our church in general that we would be um, that we would not fall prey to the attacks of the enemy because I knew we we're going to be coming out of this pandemic at some point we're going to have to make decisions about when to start meeting in person again and how to do that and you know there's a, a million different ways that we can do it and I just felt this overwhelming sense of this is a prime opportunity for us to divide and this was even before the George Floyd incident and I felt like God just put it on my heart we need to pray about these things. We need to pray for unity in our church. And um, as I was thinking through this, this text, it was just kind of reiterating, yes, we have, to, we have to pray. We have to avoid. There are going to be conversations we need to not have. There are going to be times where we need to not take the bait from people. And so I want to close by celebrating. I'm going to just read. This is not an exhaustive list, but I want to read about just a list of the things that we agree on as believers, and specifically as a believers, a part of Treasuring Christ Church. So, here we go. We agree that there is only one God. We agree in the Trinity. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We agree that the gospel is true. We agree that the Bible is God's inerrant, inerrant word. No errors. It's his perfect word. We agree in original sin. We agree in the virgin birth. We agree in the deity of Christ. We agree that Jesus lived a sinless life on earth. We agree that faith is the finished work. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is the only way to be accepted by God and delivered by sin. We agree that Jesus raised from the dead. We agree that Satan sin, and death have been defeated through Jesus. We agree that we are created in the image of God. 
We agree that we were created to bring glory to God. We agree in the sanctity of human life. We agree that God created us male and female. We agree that God established and blessed marriage between one man and one woman. We agree that God is sufficient for us all. We agree that God establishes and sustains his church. We agree that God adopts us as his children. We agree that we will spend eternity free from sin, worshiping God. We agree that God is infinite. We agree that God is sovereign. We agree that God is omnipotent. We agree that God is omnipresent. We agree that God is omniscient. We agree that God is perfect in his righteousness and incapable of sin. We agree that God is immutable. He does not change because he is perfect. And we agree in the Great Commission to go make disciples. Amen? 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 Amen. All right, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this text. I thank you that you know how we are. You know how dark our hearts are. You know, Lord, that we have no hope apart from you. But I also thank you that you have told us about the end. You have told us that Satan and sin and death are defeated. You have told us that we will spend eternity rejoicing with you. And you have told us that we will have hard times on earth, but they will draw us closer to you, and you will not give us more than we can bear. And when we have to endure hard times, your spirit will fill us, Lord. And so I pray now as we go to the Lord's Supper that we'll remember all the work that you did, that you came to a people who rejected you, you came to a people who hated you, you came to a people who had no hope, you came to a people who were dead, And because you loved us, not because we had earned anything, but because you loved us, you breathed life into us, and you gave us hope, and more than hope, you gave us eternity with you, and you sealed us in your hand as your children, heirs to your throne forever. So I pray right now, Lord, that you would bless our time as we close. In your name, amen.